hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I'm chatting with comedian and performer Ben Norris. It's great to be chatting with you today. Yes, hello, how are you? How's, how's your COVID experience going? <laughs> Same as everyone else, I think, at the moment. It's just, it's crazy. Weird. Isn't Very it? Very weird. Isn't it? Um, yeah, we met in the Laughter Lounge. It feels like many moons ago now. God, it must be, because I haven't played... Sadly, I haven't played the Laughter Lounge for I don't know how many years, but it's got to be getting on for ten. Or oh something. blimey! Yeah, it's a shame. I love that gig. I don't yeah. know if I upset somebody, but I can't get booked back there. But uh, <laughs> and I miss Dublin. You know, it was, it was always a really nice uh, opportunity to get over to Dublin and hang out there. But um, unless um, the, the Laughter Lounge change their minds, I don't know how that's going to happen for me. Yeah. Um. So, do you maybe want to start off by talking a bit about your own brand of comedy? How would you describe it? Uh. I don't know if I could describe it as yeah. a brand, but because it, I sh- sort of shambled into it from from drunken compare of my own night on a Sunday night in, a, in an art centre in Aldershot, uh, where I where I used to live, I I kind of started doing stand up by accident because I was the MC simply because we couldn't afford to to pay one, and I wanted a comedy club in my local town, so I um, booked all these comics I was seeing up in London and brought them down to the West End Centre where I had this gig. And I used to have a couple of pints and then sort of shamble onto stage and, and, and waffle. And I really got the bug. You know, if I got a laugh, it was so beautiful that I had to pursue it again. And the gig was monthly, so I always had a month to try to write a few more gags for the next one. And I did that for about two years before I ever stepped on stage anywhere else. And yeah. then I started doing open spots. So. Style-wise, I think it's all completely accidental, but um, I think, I guess, a sort of a naturalistic performance style and material-wise, general observations about uh, my life, I suppose. Uh, and, um, yeah, that it's hard, to, it's hard to describe it any other way. I guess musicians have a similar problem, don't they? A lot of musicians find it very difficult when somebody says, what style of music do you play? And they're thinking, well, I don't really want to say we're an indie band or whatever yeah. say we're you know they you know i'm an indie comic yeah <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way to describe <laughs> it um so i mean are you are you prepared before you go on stage or do you kind of riff a little bit off the audience or do you know exactly I, what you're going to do when you i have on? a I, over the years i've learned the combination of the two is best so i definitely ha- have um an opening section of material sort of waiting to drop but I try, wherever possible, not to go straight into that. Because, you know, with some audiences, some nights, some clubs, it can feel a bit clunky when you mm. go on. Unless you are a very much a material-based one-liner kind of, you know, there's no point Milton Jones coming on and saying, hey, how you doing? Nice jumper. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but I try and do some sort of riffing before I get into my stuff. And then my stuff sounds more natural to me. Yeah. So that's... I guess that's what I've learned to do is try and um, ease my way into the material so the material sounds less like material. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't want to sound like you're reading from a from a book kind of thing. You want to want it to flow, I suppose. Yeah, and that's what that's something a, a lot of new acts suffer from. They they sound like they're reading their journal, and um, it's as if the audience aren't there. They're going to just go up and read this bit. And I think you all that's the thing with stand up. I think you have to remember that there's people in front of you who who weren't there not the night before and won't be there tomorrow. Hmm. And this has to be bespoke, or at least feel bespoke to them. So the little subtle pauses and the little acknowledgement
uh, seems to have you, you pr- their interest on a particular thing and then you can ask them. I think it's great to be able to drop in and out of material and talk to people. So that's probably where my emceeing skills have really paid dividends over the years. Mm, yeah. I mean, I read somewhere you, you used to work as a printer back in the day. Yeah, I, I mean, even the word printer was, was um, exaggerating the amount of skill involved <laughs> in what I did because uh, it was uh, reprographics, I think is the technical right, term. Right, yeah, yeah. I ran these huge photocopiers that were the size of, you know, two double beds and um, filled them with thousands of sheets of A4 paper and scanned in documents and then ran them until the toner ran out and then filled, you know, refilled the toner and the paper and carried on. That was my, that's what I did. That and yeah, it wasn't hugely rewarding or challenging, but it it you know it was a job. Yeah, no, I was in screen printing myself. <laughs> oh, well, that's very high end compared well, to what I'm doing. Well, I don't know. There was a little bit of skill to it, but um, yeah, no, it just it was just a very it was very kind of thankless, a very thankless task. Yeah, I think people in those kinds of jobs in the you know people in the print room, like I was, I had two or three jobs where I was attached to something much more important so i used to work at surrey university in their print department and and then i moved up to london to pursue my comedy but obviously still needed a job and i worked uh, in the print room of a, of a large international company and you just you're sort of almost invisible you know yeah. people bring in documents that they need reproduced and drop them off and they maybe they don't even come down and pick them up. Somebody comes to collect them. He doesn't even didn't even know, speak to you the first time, and you're just you hand it over. And yeah, it's it's right. You like you say you, you're rather thankless. In those kind of roles, but <laughs> yeah. So I mean, right. how how did you make the transition? Um, were you printing? Were, were you printing when you went, when you went into comedy initially? Yes, I moved to London with my then girlfriend, now wife, and I wanted to do as many open spots as I could and it was great to be in London in the uh, early to mid 90s I guess and um, so I got that that job that I got in the international company that needed a print room manager which seemed really grand at the time but it was just me and one other bloke so I had one member of staff Uh, but it enabled me to rent a flat with my girlfriend and work five days a week but probably do three or four evenings a week out in the comedy clubs so it was a really good transitional period, and, and within four years of doing that, I had gone pro. So it was a perfect jumping-off point of being able to afford to be in London but not have to um, live on uh, cans of beans. Yeah, it must have been quite scary. What was your first proper proper gig, like your first proper set? Um, I'm, I think it was that there was a couple of places that were really good at converting open spots to paid half spots, yeah. if you know what I mean. So I, I'm, I don't know what that's like nowadays, but that it was there was a few places there that, you know, if, if you did a good open spot, they would sometimes make you come back and do a second one. But if the second one went well, um, they would usually offer you a half spot, which was, a, a, you know, the average set on the circuit is 20 minutes, so they'd offer you a 10-minute set for half the fee, you know. So it was actually a, it was a, it was a stepping stone towards pro comedy. And um, there were a few places, I'm trying to think of places, you know, but maybe like the places like the Ballon, Banana and Up the Creek, I seem to remember were the very first ones that, give, that you know, gave me an open spot. And then on the strength of that, a half spot, a 10 minute paid spot. And very exciting and both terrifying. Up the Creek, probably even more so because it was, you know, back in the 90s, it was, it had a reputation for being quite, 
quite a rough gig. Uh, in, you know, it, it, Malcolm Hardy was the kind of resident host. Oh, wow, well, yeah. An amazing character. And if your listeners have never heard of him, they should Google him because he was an interesting guy. And um, sadly, no longer with us. But yeah. he, he used to uh, create a feisty gladiatorial atmosphere. And as a new act, that was that was really something. But, you know, brilliant fun as well. You know, the adrenaline was always very much flooded through you when you did those shows. And then, you know, if that hot spot went well in those kind of gigs, then, you know, you'd expect within six months to be moving up to a 20-minute full-paid spot. And then you could you could move up much more quickly back then than I think you can now. But that's because there was only probably about 70 people attempting to be comedians. And now there's about 7,000, you know, a different landscape yeah so i mean you've, you've obviously got that you've got a musical aspect as well to your your act um so i mean yeah. how did how did that come about have you always have you always written songs written comedy songs well i yes i've always done a, two little comedy bits in my act every now and then i never in the early days i never wanted to do too much of that because i had that feeling that there was a kind of snobbery around the circuit yeah. of musical acts and I wanted to be, I, it was really important to me to be taken seriously as a stand-up comic and to, to learn to do stand-up, uh, first and foremost. But I, over the years, I couldn't deny my lust for rock and roll. Um, you know, I used to be in bands before I did comedy and play bass and sing in bands, so I just wanted to do a bit of that. So I, I, many, many, many years ago, I did a blur parody of Beetle Bum, where I changed the words in a very amusing way. And uh, I used to finish my set with it. And, you know, some comics were a bit sneery about that, but it was the audience always loved it, and I really enjoyed doing it. And then um, more recently, probably two or three years ago, I bought a little acoustic guitar and started writing funny songs yeah. just in my spare time for my own amusement. And they've crept into various aspects of my act. I started doing The Cutting Edge about three or four years ago at the Comedy Store which is the Tuesday night topical show. And when they found out that I could do a bit of music, they were very uh, enthusiastic about me including that in the in the show. So I've become one of the three or four uh, cutting edge, sorry, it's called the edge now, but cutting edge, <laughs> three or four of the edge uh, team who do um, mu music. So, and that's developed over the last couple of years. And in fact, I've now recorded an album of my comedy songs, which is now available to buy. Uh, it's called Moral Vacuum. You can listen to it on Spotify or buy it from a place called Music Glue if anyone wants to buy the CD. Uh, it's very good. Yeah, I mean, even talking about yourself, as a, you're, a, you're a songwriter as well now, I suppose, as well as a comedian. So, I mean, how do you... What's your process for your songs? Do you do you write lyrics first or do you just sort of fiddle about with a ch get a tune? It's usually... The, the, some of the, the riffs that I've just been fiddling about with... Because I'll get up in the morning and... One of the fantastic things about not having a real day job is, you know, and as you get older, you tend to wake up earlier anyway. People told me that would happen, and I couldn't believe it. It's true. I, I wake up, you know, much earlier than I did when I was in my 30s. Uh, and um, I, I'll go downstairs, make a cup of tea, and take the guitar off the wall. And the first half an hour of my day is often just fiddling about on my guitar, just drumming away. And sometimes like, a complete idea will come to me like the idea of a topic and the lyrics just they just start coming and I'll write them straight into my MacBook and and often with the 
better ideas, they, the whole thing almost comes out as one. It's weird. It just comes, just literally floods out of me, and then, and then it's done. And then I'll just refine it a bit musically and lyrically. But you, often by the end of that day, the song will be done. And then the big problem I have is learning and remembering the lyrics. Yeah. For life, you know, because it's terrifying when you start a show, start a song at a show, and you're, you know, it's got three verses and two different choruses and a middle eight, and you can't remember them. So you have to repeat and repeat and repeat until it's muscle memory in your head. But yeah, no, the, often the whole thing just comes out in, in one go. I've just written a song about Chris Packham. <laughs> I really like him, and he's actually such a character. And I was listening to a sort of documentary about him on the radio, and it just, I just while I was listening to it, I was writing the lyrics down for the song, and it just all came out in one go. And I'm, so my latest tune is a, is an ode to, to Chris Packham, the TV naturalist. He's such a likable guy, though, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't find many people yeah, that hate him. He's really nice, and he's got you know, a, a, a form of sort of Asperger's that makes him particularly unique and and i like the fact that he knows exactly what his issues are and he's learned a way of being happy with them and yeah. um so I'm, i deal with all of that in the song and i'm quite it's, it's funny and it's also quite affectionate so pleased about that tuck for the next album then <laughs> yeah and I, I must send him a copy too you should like you really should so you've, you've got three teenagers in the in the house yeah. um so what do they yeah. think of what you do are, do, are you a cool dad do you know what? I don't think any kids think their dads are cool. No. I think all kids. Do you know what I mean? Um, probably, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, Limp Biscuit or Blink 182 or whatever these kids are listening to these days, their kids probably think their dad's a bit of a dick. Yeah. But, um, I, no, I mean, in fairness, they. I think they're aware that it's kind of unusual. And I think they, certainly when things have come up like they've come to some of the festivals that I've performed at when they were quite little and I think they realised that because we were backstage and in the VIP camping and stuff like that I think they realised that there are some real perks to the yeah. job but um, it's all they've ever known so they I think you know if they might have been more impressed if I'd been a printer until they were <laughs> 10 and then yeah. and then started a, found you know, a the comic but yeah. they just think oh that's, a, you know, that's off to do his comedy thing again but no i think they're i think they're proud of me yeah and, that's uh, the thing is you know yeah if they've known any they've no, never known any any different no they've never known any different they, they know that their other friends at school they know that their parents don't do it so i think they know it's unusual but yeah no they're, they're supportive and i think they find my songs quite amusing yeah, yeah. Um, the ones that I can play to them. <laughs> I was gonna Many say a, a few um, of your a few of your songs are, are, are slightly uh, colourful. Risque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. Designed for an adult audience, shall we say? Yes, yes, very much so. Um, so who would have been your comedy idols growing up? People that might have influenced you as a comedian as you've as you've aged. My dad used to have loads of cassettes in the car a lot, a lot of people listening to this won't even know what a cassette is <laughs> some of them might not know what a car is but um, cassettes of of, uh, of, a ra- of a radio show called Hancock's Half oh, Hour oh wow classic and it was Tony Hancock and um, he and he used to do this show you probably know it but with Sid James and Hattie Jakes and Kenneth Williams and and you know probably started recording them in the 50s through to the 60s and he was, you know, a comedy actor essentially, but he just had the most brilliant timing. Mm. 
drove to my mum and dad's static caravan in Lincolnshire. So, you know, a four or five hour drive would have been peppered with these Hancock's half hours. So we, you know, he had about 30 of them on cassette and we listened to them in rotation for our entire childhood. So I think that must have had an influence on, on me, timing-wise, comedy timing. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, in the, you know, as I grew up, Ben Elton, the, the first, probably the first live comedy album that I played to death was Motormouth by Ben Elton, and, and it was fantastic. And funnily enough, uh, um, myself and a little collection of comedy pals went to see Ben Elton um, about six months ago in in London, and it, he was did a sort of two and a half hour stand up show, and it was brilliant. I have to say, I was worried, thinking he might be past it, but he was very, very good. So he was a big influence. Um, and, you know, all, all of that stuff, all of those comics that I used to go and see, some of whom are still working, you know, um, in the early 90s on the, on the then fledgling alternative comedy circuit, all, all of those guys were uh, and girls were huge influence. And, um, yeah, too many to mention. Yeah, I mean, the late 90s, when you started performing in, like, 97, it was kind of, it, I don't know, it was, a, it was a time of where a lot of things kind of exploded, you know, the comedy scene, obviously, exploded brick pop and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah it was so exciting because i gave up my day job on the insistence of a promoter called pete harris who used to run a chain of clubs called screaming blue murder and he had uh he used to take a group of acts up to edinburgh every summer uh to do a show for him called the big talent uh, sorry the big value comedy show and Basically, I got a slot on that and a residency at one of his gigs pretty much in the same period. And it was him that said, give up your day job. So in the space of a couple of months, I went from being a, you know, aspiring comic, um, you know, reaper graphics engineer <laughs> to being a professional comedian on his way to the Edinburgh Festival. And, I, and Britpop was happening and I bleached my hair and all my mates were comedians. And I lived in London and I was young and free and... Uh, it was, yeah, really exciting time, and, and yeah, Britpop was, seemed to be the soundtrack of of my. And I wasn't even that young. I mean, I just turned thirty at the time. But yeah. you know, comics are all fifteen years younger than they should, they actually are because you know we're in a state of retarded development. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we we were thirty, but we're all acting like we were nineteen. Yeah, I mean, there's and, always uh, been a, a like a connection between the comedy and music. You know, there's been there's been a lot of kind of crossovers between the two. Yeah, and often we did lots of, of, of rock festivals where they'd have a comedy stage. So every year I, I would do Reading and Leeds and Glastonbury, and and you know you were mixing with the certainly backstage. I remember yeah. sitting eating my lunch with Jarvis Cocker oh at one of those, and couldn't believe it. There he was. I think it was at Leeds Festival, and we all got a sort of a meal voucher to go round to the you know the backstage food area and there were all the all the indie pop rock stars sitting eating their um, quiche <laughs> and we were sat with them they didn't know who we were and didn't That's give crazy. a shit either but uh, <laughs> it was it was exciting really exciting to be in and amongst it so yeah i guess com- you know and there was all that stuff going around about comedy being the new rock and roll mm. there was a bit of that i i don't think i experienced a great deal of the rock and roll side of things but you know yeah, was, uh, I mean that was the kind of the, the time that you had, you know, big acts like the the, the uh, who was it uh, the like Punt and Dennis, 
and all these uh, yeah. people were playing stadiums. Yeah, Mary Whitehouse Experience, that was it. Uh, and they were playing stadiums. And it was just yeah. such a crazy time. And as you say, comedy became the new rock and roll. And you'd, ha- you'd have thousands of people in these huge, huge venues, you know, all having a similar experience. It was a very weird time. Yeah, and that had a trickle-down effect to the, the circuit that I was working on because, you know, we weren't being treated like like that because no one really knew who we were. But myself and various comedy friends, we were starting to get little bits of TV here and there. Um, and some, of course, went on to be huge. Your, your Lee Max of the world. Yeah. And, you know... Um, various other people that I was started out with who are now very famous millionaires and then there's people like me who are you know uh, well respected circuit acts let's put it that way exactly uh, exactly <laughs> but but not wealthy uh, in fact currently unemployed but um, yeah uh, yeah I was going to ask good, you how's good. how's 2020 been for you as a performer well, it was really good up until March yes and then uh, it dropped off a cliff so I've done about three or four online gigs since lockdown, uh, which were great, more fun than I thought they would be. Mostly I've been doing the songs, you know, because uh, that's much easier to do because you're not waiting for laughs, you know. Um, but it's been tough because I really miss performing and I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I've been throwing myself into DIY projects oh, around my house. So I've <laughs> literally just, you know, I've laid some carpet and I've built some decking and I've laid some floor in my daughter's bedroom and I've just done tons and tons of that kind of stuff so I've been in and out of wicks like it's going out of fashion <laughs> um, so but I really miss stand up I, I, I need to get back on the stage as soon as possible yeah I mean that's the thing it's about that human interaction isn't it you know getting that the, uh, the reciprocation yeah. from the audience it must be really really tough as a you know as a stand up doing these online gigs and there's a lot of people doing them at the moment and you're kind mm. of, you know, they, they finish their finish their set, or you know, uh, musicians as well finish their set, and there's 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 nothing. It's you know, even though you obviously you're, you're kind of clapping there <laughs> at home, but there's yeah. it must be really weird as a performer to to not get the closest that. you get to any kind of reaction was you know you, the emojis going up the side yeah. of the screen. So you get, which is really nice of people because I think they realise that you must need to feel something. So you get these nice smiley faces and hand claps and. Uh, LOLs coming up and and that that cheered me up a few it just reminded you that someone was actually watching what you were doing um but I've I've not done a straight stand-up gig in that format and I think it would be tricky I mean even some of the new outdoor gigs that are happening people are saying are really hard because you know the audience are sat in a car flashing their headlights at you (laughs) and um you know we're we're very needy people stand-ups and and our timing is down is you know down to the nth degree to all based on expected laugh periods yeah. from audiences and even if you get a normal gig with a tough crowd it can throw your timing out because you're thinking hang on that laugh normally lasts till now and i've had to come in much earlier with the follow-up line and it's all you know we, we get tuned into a, a, a typical audience reaction and when it isn't there we're um gasping for breath mm. that's the thing you wonder you kind of wonder oh is there ever going to be a normal you know i, I can kind of see i mean i know uh, andrew lloyd webber recently i think it was the other night he did uh, a gig in the palladium a social distanced gig and people were just like it's just really really weird kind of thing but you kind of wonder how these you know the comedy clubs these small comedy clubs yeah, are going to survive I, mean, I would be inclined to keep a social distance from andrew lloyd webber anyway. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Yeah, no, but yeah, I. If you take, if you 
take half the seats out of the average seated venue and put the audience in with a seat between each one of them, the atmosphere will be drastically, drastically reduced. I mean, stand-up comedy venues are, are pretty tough when no one will sit in the front row. You know, that can, that can pretty much destroy a gig if there's no front row. Uh, or certainly knock it back 30%. But if there's the equivalent of no front row and half the people are missing, yeah, it's not going to be what it was. But that said, I'll take a half-full room and I guess half the fee that used to, we used to get over nothing any mm. day uh, while we try and build it back up again. But, um, yeah, I think it's tough, it's tough. we've gone through tough times and there's really tough times ahead. I think it's going to be a long time before we get back to what was normal yeah i mean it's it's building up to it isn't it i suppose you know you, you've got to start somewhere you're obviously not yeah. going to just get everyone poured into a venue i know we were talking before about the whole the divine comedy um residency in london that's yeah, now been so exciting yeah and now it's now been put back a year but <laughs> yeah. but i mean you know you, you kind of see the closeness of people in a venue like that you can makes you wonder how things are going to be even in a year's time how much will have changed yeah well it's going to have a huge effect on people's attitude without them even knowing it possibly. yeah you know people people are i mean people are allowed back in the pubs now but they're not flooding into them you know people are um still cautious mm. quite rightly I, I think at the moment because we don't know you know if we're, we're going to try we're trying to avoid a second wave yeah. and, and a worse lockdown than before so but will people still go out to cram themselves into little comedy venues like they used to? I hope they do. And I hope people, because, you know, the other thing is most younger people are, you know, uh, reasonably invulnerable, it seems, to mm. this thing. It's just whether they are shielding other relatives and trying to trying not to make, you know, give the, give the illness to other people. But I think, I guess um, a vaccine is going to be the... It's going to be the real saviour. Yeah, but I mean, it'd be weird yeah. for you, do you know what I mean, coming out on stage and there's a, a sea of people in masks. <laughs> you know? Oh my god! Yeah, it will be. Yeah, that, it's just I mean, crazy. That won't have since I did that, since I did that KKK gig, that was <laughs> difficult. Uh, <laughs> I did. I didn't do a KKK. <laughs> I should, oh I dear. Add. Talking about that, and obviously your your colourful songs. So, is there anything that you would say is taboo as a as a stand up comedian? You know, a lot of people like you know your Jimmy Cars and stuff. They say, well, and even Ricky Gervais, he's kind of like everything is fair game. What what's your own opinion as a stand up? Um, I I generally would agree that most things are fair game. I've, I'm a bit. There's a few things that I personally just wouldn't do as stuff about because I think it's. You know, um, that said, I think there's, there, there is almost no topic that couldn't be touched upon in a comedic way because it all depends on your, what your angle is on that thing. Mm. So I, I think a blanket ban on uh, any topic would be ludicrous in for something like comedy and satire, you know, where um, just saying a word can spark people to... Um, to assume, to make all sorts of assumptions about where you're coming from, and yeah. that, that in itself, I think, should be should be fought against because we don't want thought police making our minds up for us. And skillful comedians can make good comedy about almost anything. It's whether or not you're. It's that old cliche, isn't it, about whether you're punching up or punching down? I think mm. if you if, if you try and avoid punching down, 
then then why not keep everything on the table that you can that you can use in your comedy? I think just if some comics are just well, one or two comics where their material is just nasty, and you think that's just not nice. Uh, and even some of them get away with it because it seems to be some part of some bigger plan. But the ones that aren't very intelligent and are punching down, I think, um, yeah, they're not my cup of tea. Um, but I still wouldn't ban them. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I suppose, it's about your audience, your audience knowing what you're like as a comedian. You, they kind of yeah. Your audience know when they come to see you, they know what they're going, what they're going to get. Uh, yeah, I hope of. so. And I think you're you're um, at best at, at being a stand-up. You're reflecting some part of the your genuine personality, and so it should. If you're good at doing that, then it should come across. If you are a reasonable person, that you are in fact a reasonable person there are some comics who can't disguise the fact that they really are not mm. reasonable people and you know and i think audiences pick up on that and they might still laugh because some gags are, there's a knee-jerk reaction but i think you can leave some comics sets and think i found that quite funny but i don't like him or yeah. her you know you might think i wouldn't want them around my house but um not that being likable it sh- you know not that everyone should be going out there to be liked either you know i some, I like some of the comics who don't care whether they're liked or not, you know. You know, I don't know, take Sean Mio for an example. Yeah. He, he's definitely not out to win friends and influence <laughs> people, but I, I can't help but laugh at the, the, the technical skill of a lot of his stuff is just funny. And the fact that he doesn't care whether you like him or not is, it seems to be a bonus in his, in his world, do you know what I mean? So I think some people, he's a great example of someone who I, I can't help but laugh at, but he's, doesn't, he's not trying to make me love him, you know. I mean, that's the thing. If we all laughed at the same stuff, there'd be no variety at all. Everyone would just be telling the same jokes. It'd be really vanilla, wouldn't it? Mm. And I quite like vanilla. <laughs> but uh, I'd want some options. Exactly. You need a little bit of mix it up every every now and again. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about music now. Let's move on to that. Mm. Um, so it's it's part of your act, and obviously it's a big part of your life as well. We obviously have this shared admiration for Neil Hannon <laughs> and the Divine Comedy. Um, yes. So what are your own? What are your great musical loves? Um, who who floats your boat? Wow. Well, um, definitely Neil Hannon and everything he's ever done. Really, uh, I, I I love his work and probably quite a few of my other favorites are similar similarly interesting singer-songwriter types um and uh so uh, i really like the there's a bank you, i bet you know a lot of these bands so the leisure society yeah i'm a big fan of uh they write beautiful songs um john grant is brilliant. Uh, I, I love Rufus Wayne. Bit of Rufus, yeah. He's quite prolific. He's been quite prolific during lockdown. Yeah. He's, you know, he's released an album. He's been doing these road recitals every day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think some creative people, you know, this is going to spur them on. They've just got to produce when they're not able to go and tour and stuff. they just got to produce. So it's going to be great for people like him. Ron Sexsmith is another oh, yes. singer who I love. Yeah, and, and then I'm just thinking of the last ten years that a lot of those artists have popped into my life in the last ten, fifteen years. But there's, I'm so old that I've got a massive uh, <laughs> record collection before that. So you know, I've brought up on you know, a lot of punk and stuff. So you know, my favourite band probably of all time are the Stranglers, and you know, loads of the old 
Melbourne a lot. Oh, a band called Everything Everything. Um, bit, really enjoyed them. Um, Little Dragon. Thousands of, you know, I, I'd have to just get all my records out and stare at them. But, um, yeah, that, that's enough to keep you going for a yeah. while. Yeah, I mean, what, what are you thinking about Stranglers post Hugh Cornwell? Well, I have to say, the chap who they brought in as their full-time replacement, what's it, I can't remember his name now, um, but I've seen him live twice with him, and he's brilliant. If you can't have Hugh, he's a pretty excellent um, backup. He sings and sounds very much like Hugh, although when he speaks, he's got a Geordie accent, and he plays guitar amazingly mm. close to the style of Hugh Cornwell. Um, he, he's brilliant. So, I, you know, if, if you can't have Hugh in The Stranglers, I'm still delighted to see them playing with him. Very sad, of course, that Dave Green- Greenfield uh, passed away oh, yeah. um, recently. But that's a band that I've been listening to all my life. I forgot to mention Blur, of course. They're a huge part of my um, my musical uh, life. And yeah, but the, the the height of Britpop was was Blur, and the whole thing of Blur, Blur the Blur Oasis rivalry. <laughs> well, there was no competition at all. And of course, Gorillas, you know, a fantastic, you know, side project. Yeah. Damon, he's just, he, you know, he poos melodies doesn't he? He just, they just flow out of him so he, he's a big influence and i think he's a great musician yeah some of the stuff he's been releasing recently you know so instrumental stuff and uh doing all these strange gigs yeah he's a lucky lucky man isn't he he's everything he touches turns to gold <laughs> and then anyone he asks to collaborate with him seem to immediately agree to do so you know I, when i saw them do um the plastic beach uh, album at Glastonbury mm. that year, whenever that was, and pretty much everyone on that album, luckily, was still alive. Many of them aren't now, but you know, they all came on and did their song. You know, Marky e. Smith and Lou Reed and you know Snoop Dogg and oh my God, it was incredible. <laughs> Sadly, the audience didn't seem to be as clued. You know, it was one of those years where the album had come out in May, I think. And and they were on stage in you know to June and not enough people knew the album. <laughs> I knew it back to front by then because I, you know super fan and all that. But yeah. uh, you could just tell that there wasn't enough people singing along with the the album because it was too new. I think they'd replaced the headliners that had pulled out. I think that's oh, what right. happened there. Yeah, I mean that's the so thing about uh, festivals though, isn't it? They you you always get sort of the first sort of three or four rows are fans you know you you yeah. die hard fans and the rest of it is just kind of people that are they've kind of stumbled in to see what's yeah. what's going on but quite often i think what happens is they they don't realize how many of the songs they know by that artist mm. so they might be a bit lukewarm at the beginning of the set yeah. but by the end they're like oh my god i love this band <laughs> i didn't realize how much i love this band so you know i mean you get i have no interest whatsoever in beyonce but oh. when i watched her set on TV at Glastonbury, I was thinking, well, there's a great performer. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think you can be really won over to an artist at a festival, even if they're not your cup of tea originally. Yeah, I mean, I saw Jarvis at a festival last last September over here, and he's just he just reinvented himself. He's, he's kind of the same old Jarvis that we've always sort yeah. of known and loved. But he's upped the game a little bit more with this... Uh... Right. He's very good. I, I confess I've not heard much of his stuff in the last few years. So yeah, he's, he's called like himself it's Jarvis now. So it's J-A-R-V 
separate word is <laughs> new album came out quite recently but it's you know it's a bit like you know you go and see a band and the singer is kind of the band do you know what i mean sometimes yeah. uh yeah. and if, if the singer left the band a bit, a bit like the stranglers i suppose it wouldn't be the same yeah well i mean would pulp continue without jarvis that's the thing i don't think it would it wouldn't be pulp would it I don't think they no, don't. they would be. He's such a defined personality with such a, an original and unique style that I think it would be, yeah, I think it would be glaringly tricky. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about frontmen, I think, isn't it? You know, when the they, they go off to release that that elusive uh, solo album, and you're kind of like, oh, you know, is that the end of so and so band? But um... yeah, well, that's the currency they have, is it? The front mm. person, they they can say to the band, look. I can go off and think. I think people will still be interested in me, but are they going to be interested in, in a bass player, a guitarist, and a drummer with a new bloke? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's not the same, is it? I mean, you know, not maybe we're 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 setting our ways, kind of thing. But yeah, I bet there's some notable examples of bands who who've gone on to great things even after the lead singer has left. And if I had time, I'd come at you with them, but. I'm too full of DIY brains. <laughs> I mean, you look at Queen, you know, coming back with yeah. uh, Adam Lambert, and you're kind of like... Do you know what? I watched that documentary on, yeah. just because I was a bit drunk and watching Netflix a few <laughs> weeks ago, and I watched the documentary about their return with Ad Adam Lambert, who I'd never heard of because I don't watch the kind of shows that he would... Yeah. I mean, he won one of those talent shows, yeah. didn't he? So he, he was as familiar to me as anyone passing me in the street. I had no idea who he was wasn't interested in him but i really enjoyed the documentary i love music documentaries anyway but, oh yeah um you've got again you've got to say if you need to replace freddie mercury which is almost impossible to do he did a damn good job at at doing that and, and he did do it with quite a lot of bottle and with his own style so you know and if i was at a festival and i'd had a few ciders and <laughs> queen came on with Adam Lambert, I reckon I'd have a really good time listening to, to him doing his version of Queen tunes. But it is still ultimately really high-end karaoke, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. I don't know, it's a bit like Radiohead. Radiohead are kind of coming to mind at the moment. If if Tom York wasn't... They're another band I love. I can't believe I didn't mention Radiohead. Yeah, oh my God, it. aren't they? They're just amazing. And I know Tom is, Tom is uh, supposed to be going out on the road doing a solo tour next year. That's the thing, Radiohead... Would they be the same without Tom? I suppose that it'd be a lot more instrumental, maybe? Yeah. I, well, you can imagine them making some fantastic records without Tom um, because I think they are so technical. A lot, of, a lot of the other guys do create that sound, you know, and with their little machines and their little effects pedals and ideas. And mm. I think they are a band you can well imagine... And, and one of the other guys that makes film music, doesn't yeah, John, Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, he does Johnny a lot Greenwood, of uh, yeah. soundtracks so and stuff. You'd, you'd be crazy to write them off without Tom, <laughs> but I'd rather have them with Tom, definitely. Yeah, I suppose that's I suppose that's a nice thing for front men. They can kind of think, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like you know, I need to have like a, an acoustic period, and then they can go yeah. off. They can go off and do their own thing, but they can always come back. Well, that's it. If, the, if yeah. the band will have them, you know. It's much trickier for a drummer, isn't it? So I'm going to just do an album of me and drums, <laughs> and then I'll come back. I don't know. Phil Selway released an, uh, released an album or two, hasn't he? Uh, the drummer with uh, Radiohead. Yes, yeah, but not 
surely not just him banging I away. I don't know. I don't know. I was never really interested enough to uh, to, <laughs> to check it out, to be honest. Therein lies the problem for the yeah. drama. Yeah, that's the thing, though. If you're a if you're a hardcore Radiohead fan, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I'll buy Phil's album, even All if he's the just side project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, gig. Talking about gigs as well. What's the what was the best gig you've ever been at? I mean, you must have been to a few uh, like festivals and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, if we're talking festivals, the things that spring to mind funny, are both artists we just talked about, um, Blur and Radiohead, mm-hmm. both at Glastonbury. Um, amazing. And I can't remember which years because I think I've seen both of them. Well, I've definitely seen Blur. I, I, I must have seen Blur live ten or fifteen. 10 or 15 times mm. maybe so that so it, it blurs into one um <laughs> but uh i once went to a really cool gig which was um and where to give you an idea of how long ago it was it rem and blur were on the same bill so our in fact it, it was at milton Keynes bowl yeah. rem were headlining blur were the main support and a, ba- and a band called Belly, I don't know if you remember them. Yes, yes. Uh, very, very 90s indie band. Uh, Tanya Donnelly, I think her name was, from Belly. And, yeah, R.E.M. Blur and Belly, and probably there was another couple of smaller acts underneath them on the bill. And it was a scorching July day, I seem to remember, and they wouldn't let us bring water in. It was one of those, you're like, well, you've got to let us bring water in there. <laughs> you have to buy your water in there. It was. I was at the Mil- Milton Keynes Bowl as well. It was for the monster tour, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Oh, yeah, they're great. just incredible. You know, they're they're just one of those bands that, whatever venue you see them in, they're they're going to do an amazing show. Yeah, and it felt like such a privilege to see two of our, you know, my wife and I, REM and Blur would have been right up in our probably top ten favorite acts at that time, and there they were on a bill together. We just had to be there. And Milton Keynes wasn't exactly convenient to get to from South East London, but <laughs> somehow we did it. I got a coach up from Sussex, so <laughs> right. I don't. I don't even remember how we got there. Those back, are the days. Those are the days. Loads of bands, loads yeah. of concerts, so many. But um, oh God, I mean, when I first started going to gigs, it was kind of bands like Crass and sort of these anarcho-punk bands I used to go and see with my little teenage anarchist mates. Yeah, and um, we would go up and leave our skateboards in the cloakroom of the venue <laughs> and that sort of thing, you know. Uh, uh, gosh, yeah, loads, of, loads of indie bands in the nineties, and I've seen John Grant live. I've seen, I've seen Divine Comedy maybe ten, eight or nine times. Um, a lovely gig that springs to mind was at Somerset House. I think it was uh, the Complete Banker yes. uh, times, and he was wearing his bowler hat. <laughs> Um, forgetting a lot of lyrics. He's, yeah, he's yeah, so yeah. good at forgetting lyrics. But again, bless him, he's got probably a 40,000 songs to remember, so it's not surprising, is it? Yeah, no, it'd be interesting when these uh, when these gigs happen uh, next September. He's got a year now, at least, to try and remember. Yeah, anticipation <laughs> will really build by then, won't it? <laughs> I took out a Barbican membership to, so, so as to get early priority oh, booking no. on the ticket. So I, I basically paid for a year's membership of the Barbican, which cost me, I don't know, 65, 70 quid or something, and I've not been able to use it. So that's rather annoying. They'd have to refund you that, surely, if it's... Well, I've sent know. them an email saying, I don't need that anymore, but they've not re- responded. So uh, we'll see. I'll, maybe I'll go and make use of the uh, members bar at the Barbican. I'll go and get drunk and disorderly <laughs> in there one day. Yeah. Well, 
mean, he, I know he'd started rehearsing with the, with his band. Yeah. Because they have, obviously have to learn all the albums. But they're going to be so tight by next September. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> He's yeah. got no excuses to, to screw it up then, has he? Yeah. 11-piece band. So uh, that'll be... That's uh, great. Yeah. It's going to be epic. And I... Because I want particularly... Uh, my wife and I really, really got excited that he was going to do Regeneration because that's that's the album that he hardly ever plays tracks from, does he? Mm, yeah. And I don't know why, but that was and it, it was it was produced by um, the guy who used to produce Nigel, Nigel Godrich. Yeah. That's why it's got that sound, you know, it's got that real raunchy, melancholy, uh, overdriven, punky sort of sound to it. That yeah, and the songs are all full of that fantastic combination of his witty clever lyrics but a really dark dark soul because I, I just get the sense he was going through some difficult stuff at the time and I think that really suits him because even though I love his jaunty <laughs> optimistic you know uh, songs I really like Neil Hannon when he goes dark as well yeah he, yeah that was his, his long hair phase Regeneration was such it was, it was it's the weird period in Divine Comedy history. It was kind of mm. this period where Neil was saying, "I ain't wearing a suit. I'm not wearing a suit anymore. No tie or nothing. I'm just going to wear my t-shirt, and <laughs> t-shirt and jeans." Yeah. And all that the old Divine Comedy fans were like, "Oh my god, what is going on? You know, we want promenade. You know, yeah. promenade, Neil." Right. And uh, yeah, and well, obviously, I like that. I love that album, and it's so. Um, my wife thinks that at least two of the songs are all about me uh, <laughs> Bad Ambassador and Lost Property yeah. both me. Um, have you lost a sheepskin jacket recently I lose or not a sheepskin jacket but because being a vegetarian I wouldn't wear one but, no um, no I'd hope not uh, but I've lost a hell of a lot of stuff <laughs> I do lose things and you know I am a bad ambassador <laughs> so um, yeah yeah, I'm really excited to see him and his band playing that, playing those tunes. Yeah, no, it's going to be it's going to be very very good. So, is there anybody that you would love to see live, but you so far it's kind of escaped you? They ha- they haven't toured, or you just not had the chance to. Uh... Um, Devo, Devo. Um, I've got one of the first records of theirs I bought uh, was uh, a, a live sort of like mini album. Uh, I think it's called Freedom of Choice, and it's them playing live, and it just sounds so exciting. And oh, it's obviously recorded in somewhere like Philadelphia, and the American, and it's like 1979 or 1980, and then the American audience go absolutely off the scale in their excitement. And it, I don't know if you if you are familiar with them or that record, but uh, I I would recommend anybody to to have a listen to it, Freedom, Freedom of Choice. And just the way it starts and the sound of the audience, I can't think of a, a more excited sounding crowd and a more exciting beginning to a record. Uh, so I've always wanted to see Devo live, but never managed it. So the, the Devo would be one. The Dead Kennedys with Jello Biafra still in the band, which obviously isn't possible because they've all fallen out. I'd love to have seen them. Um, oh, God, uh, there must be loads of, well, the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they would have been pretty cool. Did you God. see that uh, Laurel Canyon documentary that was out recently about uh, 
all the the bands that came out of Laurel Canyon at the end of the 60s, you know, your Joni Mitchells and your Emerson, Lake and Palmer's and the Doors and it's no, fantastic. I don't think I, it, it's no. called, I think it's Laurel Canyon um, and it literally, right. it started off, they all kind of moved in, like it started off with the birds and they kind of moved in and then other people were coming in and, you know, the mamas and the papas were were right. there and it's just it's a, isn't one that of the, where rufus lives now yes yes it's it's one of the um one of the best musical documentaries i've seen in a long time and it's got a lot oh, of the a, a lot of them are still alive a lot of them are still alive and a musical oh, documentary yes. and i'm a happy happy man yeah no definitely check that one out because it's i Sometimes think it's like the other half two parts two, two parts but um it's <laughs> very very good i will watch it for the tip <laughs> no worries so let's talk a little bit about your your album now. We we call it your album, yeah. Moral Vacuum. Um, so how did the album come about initially? Was it just a case of you had a lot of songs and you thought, I'd love to just put these all together and yeah, release them? I had I had a lot of songs and my cousin Jamie, uh, Jamie Freeman, who is a a long time collaborator. We used to be in band, a band together in our teens called Stigmata Club, and we were sort of a punk funk anarcho outfit. Uh, out, coming out of Farnham, sorry, uh, <laughs> where all the baddest bands yeah, came from yeah. those days, and um, we were, yeah. So we've always made music together, and he is um, the brother of actor Martin Freeman, uh, who's also my cousin, weirdly. Uh, that Hobbit guy, um, and yeah, the Hobbit guy, and uh, so Jamie and I always, over the years, periodically made music together. But when I told him I had a collection of funny comedy songs. He, I, I recorded a lot of them on my phone and I just went to his house and played a few of them to him. And he had a little recording studio and said, let's record some of these and let's nice. do it properly. Let, let's record them like they're real music. No offence. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, great, that would be, be great. So that's sort of, we, we just started recording them and he wanted to do it really well. So he would lay down, you know, I'd sit there with my acoustic guitar playing to a click track and then singing the lyrics. Then I'd come back a few days later, and he would have laid down a keyboard and some drums and a you know a, a you know an electric guitar, and he would make them sound fantastic. Yeah. And before you knew it, we were planning an album. And he said, "We'll do you know get twelve songs together, and we'll make a record." And and that's that's the record we made. Yeah, called, very uh, good. Moral vacuum, and I, yeah. and I think it's pretty credible sounding. Have you heard it? Not yet. I've heard tra- I've heard tracks. Oh. I haven't heard the album as a, as a whole, but I've heard I've heard tracks. Oh well, I, very good. I, what I, I've heard so far, definitely, definitely recommend it. Um, so, I mean, oh, how long did it take from the initial you and Jamie having a ch- chatting about it until well, you had a? It, let's put it this way: it could have taken a week and a half <laughs> if if we just spent a week and a half in his studio <laughs> doing it, because it probably took a week and a half in studio hours yeah. but that was spread over nearly two years oh blimey <laughs> Jamie's very busy and I'm quite busy yeah. and he lives uh, near Brighton and I live in South East London so it was it, he would basically let me come down every now and then when he had a few hours spare because he didn't charge me any studio time which was very good of him so it it was a slow process really slow um so no, about a year and a half between the first song being recorded and the last song being finished and then about another six months before an actual cd was produced so yeah it was a slow process probably because you know we he was doing it as a favor yeah but also you don't want to rush it do you you'd rather spend time and put some love into it yeah we finessed it yeah 
So do you reckon there's another another album in you? <laughs> oh, easily. I mean, I've <laughs> nice. written another album's worth of songs since since we were finished recording that one, and I'd love to do, just get on and do another one. But I kind of feel like I need to post lockdown. I need to promote and sell the first one a bit. But I'm going to start nagging Jamie for some more studio time pretty soon. I think. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> We should say it's probably not for the easily offended. Well, some tracks definitely, but nothing is for the easily offended. There <laughs> that is, yeah, that is true. That's very true. <laughs> what I mean, what do they like? I mean, the easily offended. Come on, they don't leave the house. In fairness, I don't think. You well, know. they shouldn't. Because everything <laughs> would offend them. But I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm definitely not going out of my way to upset people. But at the same time, I think it, I do think swearing's funny. So. <laughs> In, and especially in songs, you know, I'm, uh, there's a few songs on here with gratuitous swearing, but in only in in service of the amusing uh, ideas within the songs. Yeah, I mean, even if you look back at what the Pythons were doing, and how a lot of their musical songs, you know, kids are being school, kids are being school the next day, re- you know, singing the songs, reciting these, you know, and Derek and Clyde. Oh, I mean, yes. I grew up I would be roaring, especially because I knew I shouldn't be hearing it, you know, at 13, <laughs> some of the language they would come out with. But, yeah, so I played the album to my kids for the first time in the car on a car journey about <laughs> six months ago. And they're, you know, they'd just turned, they had just turned 14 at the time, and I was a little bit, almost, not embarrassed, but, <laughs> but very aware that there were a few lyrics that I, I didn't want to have to explain to them. <laughs> and they were good enough to not ask me to. <laughs> oh my goodness so where can people get a copy of uh of moral vacuum anyway if they're listening well, and i think oh, i, I need to check this out it. you can listen to it on spotify and similar um type online music players uh so you can try before you buy kind of thing you can download it from um those kinds of uh, soundcloud is it I oh yeah yeah um, but you can buy the actual CD, if, which I would recommend you do so I can get them out of my cellar, um, <laughs> from a place called Music Glue. And if you buy it from there, I will sign it for you and send Fantastic. it to you in the post myself. Um, so, yeah, they, they, there's lots of... Uh, if you just Google my name, uh, you'll, you'll, there's details from my website, bennorris.co.uk. And I'm on Twitter, Benny underscore Norris. And you can find details there also yeah i was going to talk to you about social media how do you find it as a promotional tool or did you do you just use it as a yeah i I mean it's 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 great to be able to stick stick stuff on i'm never sure how much um kickback i get from any of it yeah because i'm not i'm not famous so you know if you're not famous it's quite you know it's quite limited i think the amount of feedback you can get on anything but um I've never got anything go viral yet. That's what I'm hoping. What I need to do is make some really good videos yeah. for some of these songs and um, and then put them out on Twitter and Facebook and hope that they go a little bit viral. But I I haven't had time or the money uh, to make a proper video for, for any of the songs. There's a number of little cheapy, uh, low-rent versions of things online. But I want to make some high-end, high-quality videos for some of the songs because I think they warrant it. And then who knows? Then maybe Facebook and Twitter will really come into their own. But yeah, yeah, maybe you need to get the three teens on the case, get them to you know, yeah, absolutely. Do some video they're, they're, in. They're, they're trying to get me on TikTok. 
Oh, blimey. Uh, and and, uh, and Instagram, but neither of which I understand. But then I'm, you know, I'm old enough to get a free flu vaccine. So, I, you know, it's not for me, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're looking to go viral, TikTok is a good... Uh, I don't fully understand it, but it's, right. it's crazy, you know. I think yeah. That's the, the, the way to go viral, I think, is uh, the TikTok yeah, videos. Well. So, yeah, thanks so much for chatting with me, Ben. It's been an absolute oh, pleasure. Good, I hope, I hope so. I don't think I've been particularly funny, but... Um, we were talking about quite a lot of things that are dear to our hearts, weren't we? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.